Michelle Gardella's life started hard. Poverty, alcoholism, abuse. But Michelle is a truth teller, and truth tellers rise above by letting the truth carry them away. First, Michelle used her camera to tell the truth. She started as a wedding photographer because she had a family and her family needed money and Michelle knew how to hustle. Michelle became one of the top wedding photographers in the world. But wedding photography was not Michelle's truth. Her truth was found in, quote, taking people to the water, stripping away everything we think defines us, and then taking pictures of them when they have nothing left but themselves, end quote. With these images, Michelle launched her first successful Kickstarter campaign, leading to the publication of her first book, River Story. Now, Michelle has a second book coming out, funded by her second successful Kickstarter campaign. This one is about her life, about her story from the hard past to the still hard but heartbreakingly beautiful present and what it took to get here. Michelle has been named one of the top 30 photographers in the world by Rangefinder Magazine, one of the top 10 photographers in the U.S. by Professional Photographers of America, and her work has been exhibited in galleries around the country and in several books. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, founder of the Creativity Circles Collective, and you're listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast, the practice behind the art, the story behind the artist. Today's guest is photographer and author Michelle Gardella. In this conversation, we talk about how to rise above a life of poverty and abuse to become one of the top 30 photographers in the world, photography as a truth-telling tool, how your brokenness leads right into your beauty, launching her first and second successful Kickstarter campaign, and playing the game of social media as only a truth-teller can. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hi. Hi. I start with how creativity showed up for you as a little girl, and I actually am going to start with something a little different for you, and it's a quote that you said uh, on Instagram, and I'll ask my question after I read the quote. So the quote is, I come from food stamps and parents whose addictions landed them in and out of prison and jail and homelessness. When I share this, some people wince physically and energetically, but I'm done pretending I've somehow made it out and left it all behind because the truth is, it doesn't matter how successful I become, my heart will always be a scrappy little survivor. I was once named one of the top 30 photographers in the world. My work has been on the covers and pages of hundreds of major magazines, and I've worked with major influencers, but the thing I am most proud of is my past. Why is that the thing you're most proud of? Dang, we're starting out right out the gate. I like it. Um, You know, it's really interesting because I think today, especially, this is applicable because like I did launch a Kickstarter, my second one that I've been talking about for years and just really afraid of. And it's, and then I did, I just had these two seconds of courage and was like, Michelle, you're, you're got to do it now or you're never going to do it. And so I just clicked the button and then had like full body (laughs) like shaking and everything. But when you ask about my past and why it's what I'm most proud of, it's because of that. I think when you live through the things that 
I lived through and I witnessed other people living through, fear takes on a different power. And I'm not trying to minimize or maximize or compare to anybody else's experience. But when it comes to my images and it comes to my writing or it comes to the Kickstarter, it comes to anything in my creative life, I always ask myself, what can you really lose here? Like what is, what actually is the risk? And I think when you see what real risk is at such a young age and you live in that at such a young age that when you're older, this whole idea that creativity can be dangerous, which I see constantly with my students um, just every day, it feels dangerous to them to put themselves out there. It sort of takes on a different heaviness. Like, of course, there's still risk. And of course, I still have anxiety every single time I put something out there, but it's different. And so I think that, that, that knowing is what helps me to be really fearless, especially when I'm behind the camera and when I'm taking these risks, because it's like, people always ask me like, how do you, oh my God, you do these crazy things. Like, how do you, how do you get so brave? And it's like, well, I think when you've been through the mud and you've, you know, you've lived in kind of the muck and yucky stuff, then it's not so scary to jump in the deep end. You know, it's like, I've already done much worse. I can handle whatever the worst is going to throw at me in this situation. I do think that the sense of pride, I think that when it comes to the word proud and my sense of pride around my past, it has to do with resiliency and I'm being really careful with how I say this because, again, I never want to minimize anybody else's experience. I think everybody's experience is valid, and I've seen pain across the board. It's part of the human experience. No one is exempt. But I do think that there was such a long period of time, starting when I was a child, where I was so embarrassed of you know, my parents are so embarrassed of our house or so embarrassed of these things. Um, I can remember I got into this like exclusive private high school in Connecticut. And I remember like the first week I invited people from the private school to my house and my house was like less than 900 square feet. I mean, it was like this little tiny house, but I never knew until the kids, the girls said no, that they couldn't come over because they were afraid of being shot. It was like, what are you talking about? Like, these are my beloved neighbors. Like, this is my family. This is my house. And I remember in that moment realizing that there was this sense of shame that was like forever going to be stuck to me from that moment on. Like, it was the first experience of knowing like, dang. And I I had to process that. And now I stand in a place where I'm like, heck no. Like, that's what fuels my my fire. That's what makes me who I am and as honest as I am. And I'm only motivated by helping others. I'm not motivated by money. I'm not motivated by, I would, my husband probably wishes I was motivated by money, <laughs> but I'm only motivated by going back and reaching back and helping other people. And I think that unless I had gone through all of those things and come out in a place where I'm like, I'm so proud of that grit and that and that grind, I wouldn't really be effective at doing that. There is so much in what you just said. There are so many different things I want to, so many different paths I want to explore around what you just said. And so I actually want to start with, you talked a lot about the fear and the risk. Like what, 
what was so risky in your childhood that now it's not so fear doesn't play as big a role for you? Like you said in that quote, I grew up around always aware of the role that addiction can play in people's lives. And when you're a child in an environment where your parents are struggling with any disease, whether it's addiction or illness or mental illness or whatever, um, it's scary, you know? And I think I, so when I was born, I had obviously a mom and a dad. And then um, my biological father was never in the picture. And uh, I ended up being adopted by uh, my dad, the person that I call my dad. And his story is remarkable. He's the one who was homeless for years up in Boston. And he's very open about that. And when he, he came into my life, he was already in the program. And it, this is why so much of my story, it's kind of their story too. So I hesitate when I talk about it. But um, I grew up watching my mom and him sort of weave into this world of sobriety. And I shared another post about this on my Instagram recently where I said, uh, when I was a little girl in school at, at like parents night, they asked all the kids what they wanted to be. And I stood up and was like, I want to be an alcoholic. Uh, because for oh, me, my gosh. oh yeah, no. And I actually had to archive the post because it was the comments got kind of out of hand, but and now I, I can touch on that too. But for me, when I said I want to be an alcoholic, it was because for a few years at that point, I had been going to these AA meetings and seeing the most incredible things I had ever seen. Like I had seen adults that were, you know, quote unquote, rough or, you know, what you would think on the outside were like these really rough, tough people. And they were openly crying men and women and hugging and supporting each other and putting the pieces of their lives back together and apologizing to people that they hurt. I mean, to be a little girl and to be exposed to that, I had no idea that to say you were an alcoholic was a bad thing. I thought it was like this membership into this awesome club of just the most incredible friendship and support that existed. And so I remember um, now, of course, I fully understand the underbelly of addiction and all of those things. But when you ask like what felt risky or what felt scary, there's so much that goes along with addiction, like the poverty, the abuse, all of those things that um, I think are so often not spoken about that it's, it's hard. It's hard for a little one. I had no brothers and sisters um, to get me through it. So yeah, it was really tricky. But like I said, my parents, uh, did both find sobriety, which in so many ways, I've seen both sides of the tracks on many different experiences. Like I've seen addiction and I've seen sobriety. I've seen poverty and I've seen wealth. I've seen so many of these, uh, East and West sort of communities and experiences. And I think that, uh, yeah, that's something that I'm always kind of exploring through my work. Hmm. It's so fascinating to me that you got to see that as a child, that uh, like the vulnerability and the realness of people underneath all that's the, the stuff we put out to the world, that that was something 
we don't think about that in terms of the, the gift of what that offers a human being. And I know Glennon Doyle speaks to that a lot of when she went to her first AA meeting, it was like, or I don't know if it was AA, but when she went to her, her first meeting, like, oh, these are my people because they're speaking the truth. And that's, you, that's what you were honing in on as this little girl. I want, basically, I want to be in a world where people tell the truth and where people are honest about who they are. And that actually, I mean, I, I am going to jump ahead because that dovetails so perfectly into the work you do with river photography. And then we'll come back. We'll circle around to a bunch of different themes that were came in and just the first thing you shared. Your river photography, like the photos, the word that just always comes to mind is arresting. They just stop me. The question I have for you with that is, what was it that got you, how did you go from being a photographer who was, as you say, playing like this formulaic game and very successfully, you were doing really, really well to dropping, to moving into river photography and explain what it is. So I think growing up in a house of addiction, you learn really quick how to play that game. So when you talk about pride, that's another thing that I like. feel like, oh, well, I definitely learned the game of a hustler. You know, you learn how to wear many masks, how to read situations really quick and kind of switch into what you need to do. So when you talk about how I was successful as a wedding photographer and playing that formulaic game, it was like, yeah, I mean, I knew you tell me what to do and I'll do it. I mean, not anymore, but at the time, that's where I was coming from. Also, being a wedding photographer came out of a necessity. Like at the time, we had like no money. We just had our second baby. We had moved from Laguna Beach, California to Connecticut to take care of my dad who had cancer. I mean, there was a lot going on and it was kind of like, all right, what am I going to do? And I reached out to two photographers that I knew um, that I respected, but I didn't really know anybody else. But these two I happened to really like, and I paid them each $100 to have a phone conversation with me. And I asked them, tell me the fastest way to make money. And they were like, shoot weddings. And I was like, okay. And then nine months later, it was like, magazines, you know, I just always had that hustler heart. And well, the way that I made the switch, I guess there, I don't know if this is true for everybody else, but for me, there's only so long I can exist in that state of pretend. Um, and so, yeah, I was like shooting these weddings and sure. I'm not saying I like, it was torture or anything like that. It was beautiful to witness love, but when you look at weddings and our culture, they're really focused on us at our best, right? When you're at a wedding, the dress is the nicest and the purest and the cleanest and the suits are the perfectly pressed, you know, versions and the linens are perfect. And it's really like a lot of Americans, it's like, this is us at our best. Everyone's supposed to be on their best behavior, look their best. You know, our fanciest clothes are worn at weddings. And it was really the opposite of where my, I felt like my, um, my, my true, like every day to day existence was, you know, I had these kids and we spent every day outside and, 
covered in mud and going fishing and hiking and riding our bicycles all over the place and not showering every day. I mean, the truth of the matter is that's just like who we've always been, these kind of nature people. And um, just really connected with that. And then I would have to like every weekend kind of step into that role that um, of like Michelle on her best behavior, Michelle with good manners, Michelle with makeup on, Michelle, all these things that weren't real. And I could only do that for so long. And I started to feel really sad. And like, I'd be crying a lot when I'd be editing weddings. Cause I would just feel like, dang, like I'm not, this isn't what I want to be doing, but I need to provide for my family. And at the time I had a business, uh, coach that I was paying. And, um, when I, well, I'll say this and then I'll backtrack a little bit. When, when I told him about the idea to do river stories, he was like, I swear to God, if you do that, it's like, you're never going to make a dime for the rest of your life. Like, this is like the worst business plan ever. Um, this is like really not what is good basically. I mean, in, in summary, especially because I had just been recognized and I had been in all these magazines and, um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like the money was really, really great at the time and uh, more than six figures. And it was like, if you do this, if you, if, if you do this, the only, first of all, he was like, the only people that'll ever want their pictures done by you in this way will be like poor hippies. And (laughs) so right off the bat, like you're only going to have like $5 people showing up. And Um, you know, it was just like a lot of negativity, but a lot of what he was saying were the voices that I was hearing myself anyway, those voices of self-doubt. And I think there's nothing worse (laughs) than when you already are having these feelings and these thoughts and then somebody validates them and you're like, oh God. Um, but again, it's just like, I just couldn't keep pretending. And so actually River Story, the first River Story ever well, like the first official river story that I shared with other people, I was on a shoot for a bridal, um, like editorial shoot for a dress designer and we were shooting her campaign and that was really, really hot. And, uh, there was only one vehicle to drive us around. And at one point the model, there was no room for her in the truck. And so everybody like got in the truck and they told the model, like, well, you can just walk. And I was like, Oh, that kind of sucks. Like, I'll hang back with her and then I'll meet you guys at the next location. And I don't, this is what I mean when I say like, I don't ever know what I'm doing when I do this shit. But like, I, again, like with the Kickstarter, it's like, I just get these feelings and I'm like, what do I have to lose? Nothing. And so I took off my dress that I didn't even have like I mean, sorry, not to get like whatever, but I didn't even have like a bra and I just had like my panties and I took off my dress and gave her my white like sundress that I was wearing. And I put on her shirt and, and told her to go in the water because we were along a river called the Salmon River. And I could just see in her face that she was really nervous the whole day and modeling in itself is a whole nother ball of wax that I can't even touch the surface of. But I just felt like this is what she needed and this is what I needed. And so we went in the water and we took these pictures, just the two of us. Um, 
and we both obviously were soaking wet. And I mean, literally it was in the middle of another shoot and it made no sense at all, but, um, okay. So then we took the pictures. When you took your dress off and offered it to her and told her to get into the water, was what did you see in her? But not like in terms of her reaction. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. I've never, I don't remember. And like, I don't think I, I don't think I would have said it unless I had already gotten a feeling that like it was supposed to happen or like we were going to do this anyway. Like, I just feel like we were both kind of like, yeah, let's do it. Like, fuck it. Sorry. I know I curse all the time, but we were both just like kind of fed up with the whole day and with the whole thing. And we were just kind of like, I don't know, let's go do this thing. (laughs) So when we took the pictures and then um, walked back up and then I remember the next day editing the photographs and going through all of the formal ones, which I actually really liked, you know, I, I had no problem with them, but then getting to the pictures in the river and being like, wait a second, like this is something different entirely. And then when I talked to the model about it and asked her, she was like, yeah, I felt it too. Like these pictures are just have like a world of their own. And um, so, but like River Story initially came out of when I shared that my dad adopted me, when he first adopted me, you know, here's this guy, he's been homeless, like in jail a billion times, this rough guy. And now that he's sober, he's just like the softest, kindest man. And now he's got a daughter all of a sudden, you know, and it's like, what is he going to do with this girl? And so we used to go fishing all the time. We'd wake up in the morning and look for night crawlers. And then he would take me to the river and we would just sit in silence and fish. And he actually taught me, um, you know, like the gift of communicating without saying anything. Cause we would sit there for hours and just watch the sunrise together. Because if you talk, you scare the fish, you know? So we just really game became really close together. And so ever since then the river, because I grew up in a city going to the river was like an outing. And so it was always a place where I would go when I felt overwhelmed or anxious or scared or sad or anything. And so that time in that river with that model felt like, wait, maybe it's not just me. You know, it was like one of those times where you're like, maybe other people like to go to the river too. Um, Was this before or after the conversation with your business coach? This was before. Okay. Yeah. And so by the time I talked to my business coach, I had already done a few with my close friends. I had reached out to them and been like, hey, there's this thing that it wasn't even really about the pictures. It was about this experience, this like reunification of bringing women to the water. It was like me finally starting to like stop apologizing for who I was and just be the girl who is like, yeah, let's go in the water and hang out. And so at that point I was fairly certain, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite books is the secret life of bees. And in there, Sumon kid talks about once you're stung, you can't be unstung. And it's kind of, once you kind of know what you're supposed to be doing, it becomes painful to not be doing it. And so by the time I had that conversation with him and he validated all my fears, I already knew that I couldn't, that there really was no choice in the matter. Yeah. Okay. There's a couple things there. First of all, 
in terms of the going to the river with your dad and having all these long stretches of silence and learning to appreciate silence, how does silence play into your work as a photographer? I think that in a lot of ways, photography was my way of hiding in the silence, if that makes sense. Um, I think that silence is gorgeous and it's valuable and it's important and it's where I usually can hear the messages of what I'm supposed to do next, not really hear voices, but you know, like listen to the, to my own inner knowing. But at the same time, I think that I was hiding behind the silence of photography for a really long time because I was afraid to like actually let my words be out there. So I think it's like one of those double-edged swords where it's like silence is beautiful and needed, but at the same time, I think it can, you don't want to over silence yourself or your truth. Yeah. I think like when I was, again, like at that private school, that's where I took my first photography class. And I remember the teacher, you know, I had like a Pentax film camera and nothing fancy. And some of the other kids in my class had, you know, literally the fanciest things that you could get. And I remember my teacher kept telling me like, oh, you have something kid, you know, like there's something here. And I remember one time he kept saying, I want you to take pictures of where you live. And I was like, why? Because at that point I already knew that like, you know, those girls had already told me they didn't want to come over. I had already come to realize that where I lived and where I shopped and who I was, was a source of shame. But when I did take pictures of where I lived and I did take pictures of my neighbors and hang them up in the school, it was like easier for people to digest. And so that's where the role of silence, I think can be really powerful in my photography. And I think, you know, no one proves this more than Gordon Parks, but I think like for myself, it became an eye opener that sometimes when I say things, it's too much or if I try to share my feelings, it's too much. But if I can somehow translate it into art, it like takes the edge off a little bit and allows people to insert themselves into my story. So it becomes more of like a conversation that I think people can understand without any words. But again, I do think that I leaned on my photography for a really long time and told other people's stories for a really long time as a way of kind of like silencing myself. So it's a balance. I have, a, there was another, there was a painter I was interviewing. Um, can't remember her name right now, who said something very similar about uh, just dealing with race issues and things that are challenging to talk about. But when she paints them, it's a way in that people can have the conversation in a way that they can't with words. So when you said the thing about sometimes you will say things that like, it's too much, it's too much for people. And then you said earlier, you mentioned how when you, in an Instagram post, how you shared the story about, I want to be an alcoholic. And then you had to actually take the post down because of the comments and you said you could talk, speak to that. What was it in particular that you were talking about? Like what happened in the comments in terms of sharing your truth and having people respond? 
You know, social media is a tricky video game that I have not figured out. So that whole thing is its own thing. Um, I'll break my answer into two parts. One, growing up, I was too much because I was a truth teller, right? When you grow up in a family where there's abuse across the board, I mean, my grandfather, all these people, you know, and so And you're the one to be like, no, that's wrong. You're wrong. I'm not going to let you do this to people. Or you're the one who is the whistleblower of the family. I'll tell you what, there's, it is not, it is not an easy road. But when you have that fire of truth in your throat, you're either going to set it free or it's going to burn you alive. So I really didn't have a choice in the matter. So that's what I meant. Um, when I talked about it in that sense. And in terms of social media, I don't think I will ever come close to understanding 1% of that. I I really truly think it's a video game that I've never been good at video games. I'm like the worst. So um, my 16 year old son will, will totally confirm that. But yeah, so the comments on that particular post started getting really tricky. People were saying, how bad AA is and how horrible their experience was and how, um, you know, who did I think I, it's always some version of who do I think I am. That's truly, I mean, anytime somebody is saying something negative to me on social media, it's usually some version of who the heck do you think you are? And um, sometimes I leave it and sometimes I'm like, I really don't have the time and space for this. And my husband always reminds me, Michelle, when you're posting things, you can turn off the comments. And I literally, again, forget because I'm like, well, la, la. but I think um, in that sense, I think that there's a time where a conversation is necessary. And when you're doing emotional labor and it feels like, you know, what, I'm going to leave this post up because this is necessary. And there's a time where you're just like, I literally am not going to fight this fight and I'm not going to leave these hateful words in this space. And so I archive it. But I think that, uh, you know, when people start saying negative things about just alcoholism in general, oh, my ex-boyfriend was an alcoholic and he's the worst person ever. And it's like, that's when people post stuff like that, it's the reaction, not to my words, it's a reaction to their own stuff. And I'm just always like, oh man, I'm really, um, I have a lot of anxiety. I'm very empathetic and I, it's almost like, you know, with antenna, my antenna are huge. I pick up a lot of things. And so when it comes to social media, when it's like thrown in my face like that, it almost is like too much to digest. I'm just like, oh, it's too much pain. There's enough of that out there and I don't want it in my space. And I think that social media in some ways is, a microcosm of just life in general in terms of it's really, I don't know that anybody has it figured out. And like, it's like we say we want honesty, but then people are honest and we're like, Whoa, that was too much. Or we go out into a situation and we think I'm just going to be me. And then people are like, no, 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 don't, don't be you. Like <laughs> that, that didn't work. And so it's this constant trying to figure out how does this thing work? And I really feel that's a lot of what we're doing in life. And this ties back into what you said in the very beginning about creativity 
and how people feel that creativity can be dangerous, which I completely understand. And I would like to go back to that for a minute and we'll come back to River Stories. Like I said, we're gonna, it's not a linear conversation, but this idea of creativity being dangerous and one element of that is just what you shared. We put ourselves out on social media, people have all sorts of opinions and then either we choose to delete the post or maybe we're like, I can't handle this and stop posting or we stop posting what's true, or we get so confused that we just go back to what other people are doing and try to try to share in the way that they share. I mean, I've been through all of this and I think in some ways creativity is dangerous, but it's also understanding what the danger is. So can you talk about your personal experience around it? And I know you said it doesn't feel so dangerous to you, but your personal experience around kind of entering into the realm of a little more danger with River Stories and also how you speak to your students when they come to you with this feeling that it's dangerous. Yeah, and I think like with your... I feel with, I just want to say too, like when you said it's a lot like life, I think in the same way that we're able to kind of control who we surround ourselves with in our everyday lives, sometimes it feels like I don't have that same control um, on social media. And so you just had me come to this realization of why I probably have such a hard time with it is because of that lack of boundary. Um, I do have an additional account on Instagram that's private and that definitely has much more boundaries around who gets in and who gets to see and who doesn't. But I think you just really made me realize something that I never realized before. And that's, um, you know, growing up, I didn't have a say, especially during the chaotic years of who was coming in and out of my house, who was coming in and out of my space. Um, all this more stuff will be in my book too, that I have been working on, but um, so really curating my life is something that I've worked really hard for to really surround myself with, not even necessarily positive people, but just people with golden hearts or good hearts. You know, everybody's around me is really trying to do the best that they can and, um, just good people and loving people. And I think, um, it's interesting because I did work so hard to create that. And then on social media, like I said, you just had me realize that it's kind of like, it's one of those experiences where everybody can come in and anybody can say what they want. And it probably feels a little bit like when I didn't have the, um, the boundaries that I really wanted. So anyway, thank you for that realization. Um, yeah. And in, in terms of the danger, so one thing that I try to tell anybody who asks me for advice or help with photography. Um, and I hope that all of my students will back this up is that the number one thing that I try to instill in them is not to second guess themselves when the camera's in their hand. So it's almost like when you hear people say about yoga or working out or something like, Oh, 99% of the battle is showing up at the gym or 99% of the battle is showing up at the mat. I really think like 99.9% of the battle is picking up the camera. And then once you pick up the camera, from my experience working with so many people, um, meaning like mentoring and teaching them, is they all of a sudden get this crazy um, battle that takes place in their head. And they start to think, 
should I do this? Should I do that? I want to do this. I want to go that. What's the light like over there? What are they doing? What are they thinking? Oh my gosh, do they hate me? And blah, 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 blah. And my advice to anybody to remove that element of danger or that thorn or whatever it is, is once you get to that point where you're brave enough and you've got your camera in your hand and you've made it to this point where there's people in front of you, don't be afraid to be completely horrible because really, who cares? Nobody is going to see every picture you've ever taken on your camera, right? Like, it's just, I don't know, not from my experience, it's not something that a lot of people do. And so what's the worst thing that can happen if you just go try something? Like, what's the worst thing that could happen if you, this is what I'm always asking myself is like, who cares? Like who, this is where it comes down to removing that sense of danger when you're in the moment of creating art. Anybody who's done a river story with me, I think that they think it's going to be this like sacred thing and they're going to show up and I'm going to be like meditating with like incense coming out of my, no, it's like, (laughs) it's honestly like a disaster in the most beautiful way. We have so much fun. I'm running around like a child climbing rocks, mountains. We're splashing through the water. I'm falling down half the time. I mean, it is like laughing hysterically until my stomach hurts. Like, because I just grant myself the permission to just go. Like, let's just go. And if something's not working, I'll look at them and be like, this fucking sucks. Like, let's go find another spot. Let's go. Let's go adventure. We have this whole big woods to us. And so I think like, just grant yourself permission little by little as much as you can, whether you're a photographer or whether you're an artist who's picking up the paintbrush or you're, you know, whatever the, you're a singer who's writing songs. I don't know. Just grant yourself permission to be a total failure. When I teach high school, which I hope to get back to, because honestly, it was like probably the greatest experience in my life with those kids. But, um, I tell them that they, I will not give them a grade unless they fail. Like, Mm -hmm. meaning if I'm teaching middle schoolers and it's the first time that they've ever done manual settings on their camera and they come to me and say, oh, like I want to get a perfect A plus, like tell me, no, I want you to go out there and like struggle with it. I want you to figure out shutter speed. You know, we break it down by all these different elements And it's through failing and letting yourself figure it out and fumble that when it clicks, it's like, oh, man. Uh, Just to say something to that, it's not even failing. It's just doing. Yeah, but you have to give yourself permission. I think, in my experience, until we say to ourselves, I'm going out and I'm going to fail. Like, I'm going to intentionally be horrible at painting. Like I recently really wanted to learn how to do watercolor and I signed up for this class and I showed up and I was miserable because I wanted to be good. I I was like, I'm paying this money. I want to be good at watercolor. And then I took the class a second time and I promised myself I would be really bad and almost like removed the expectation. And then I ended up being pretty good. So it's like, in my experience, and as a teacher, you have to also create and curate the space where it's okay to fail too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's kind of, it's like what Anne Lamont says, the shitty first draft. It's knowing, oh yeah, this is going to be crap. And that's, that's fine. Like I'm that's the point. Yeah. 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 Okay. One of the things though that I wanted to ask you in relation to River Stories is 
you talked about the shame that you felt as a, as a child, especially like when the girls wouldn't come over to your house and all of that. And, and the ways that you felt embarrassed about who you are. And then you go into this work as a wedding photographer and it was great providing you with financial security. It got you a lot of fame. Like you really, and you learned a lot, I'm sure about photography doing that. And yet you weren't connected. You weren't doing what really was your work. And I'm wondering if, as you started to do river stories, if what happened to the shame that you felt about yourself? Um, so when I, I only know how to tell stories, so that's why it's kind of tricky, but I remember when, so River Story was my first Kickstarter project and that's really how I launched this whole idea of River Story into the world and how I really replaced the income that was coming from weddings with my River Stories. So I'll answer your question by explaining this experience of I... My mom and my dad are incredible human beings, especially with the limited tools that they have in their toolbox. That being said, I've never really been pushed. And meaning like, you know, when I told my dad I wanted to be a photographer, he was like, I have this great idea for you. You could set up a table at the train station and sell prints to like people who come in from New York City. Because at the time I was living in Connecticut. And to him, that was like, I might as well have won the Pulitzer Prize. Like to him, that was it. That's like, if you're a successful photographer, you're selling prints on the side of the train station road for $5. So when I decided that I was going to do this Kickstarter, it was like the craziest idea I ever had. And when I tell you that I did not think that it would be successful, I promise you, I had no, no confidence. But I also was at such a point of sadness that I was like, I need to try. I need to at least try. And so when you talk about shame, I'll share the first morning that I um, was working on my river story and write about. So at the, I don't know if this is still how Kickstarter is, but it didn't, this didn't happen this time with this one, but I sent the project off to Kickstarter and they like reviewed it and then they gave me back some feedback and then I would send it back to them and then they would give me more feedback. And I'm sure that's not how it is now, (laughs) but at the time, that's how it was. Maybe that's how it is now. I have no idea. It's probably like an algorithm, but so one morning we were living in the Airstream. We had already sold our house and sold all our belongings and really committed to living this life on the road. And we were camping and I asked my husband to take the kids to the library so I could have the morning to just like put the finishing touches on this Kickstarter. And he left and there was this moment where he, they had just left. I could hear the truck still pulling down the road and I looked up and there was a bobcat, right? Like maybe like two inches, the way that airstreams are, you know, they have these like huge windows and I say she because I'm convinced it was a female. I have no idea. But like in my heart, in my story, it's a female. And she looks right at me. And then she turns and she starts to try to walk away. And she's like dragging her back leg. And you can see it's just like really, really badly mangled and broken. 
And she kept turning at me and looking at me and walking away. And of course, I'm like fumbling for my phone and I did get a video of it. And then eventually she went into the woods and walked away. So I was like stunned. First of all, I didn't even know, I'd never seen such a like big wild animal outside of like a zoo. I didn't, it's not that I didn't know that they existed in the wild, but like my brain had no place to categorize her or so when I first saw her, my brain was like squirrel, bird, like really trying to understand what was happening. And then once my brain settled on like this thing could, could kill me, even though she was broken and damaged, I was in such reverence of her power. And so when she went back into the woods, I sat down and I realized I'm not going to work on this anymore. Like I'm not going to make any more changes. I'm just going to hit the lunch button because that little messenger, not little, but like that fierce messenger just gave me the message that like, you can be who you are. You can be dragging yourself through the woods, but you're still a queen. Like you can still stand in your power with what you have. And I hit launch thinking, oh, this might take... 24 hours before anybody sees it or before somebody gives. How much were you asking for? 10,000. Okay. And the first person, this is what I'm talking about, the shame. So the, then all of a sudden within like maybe a minute, I get a message that says, Julie Comfort has just given to your <laughs> river story. And just her name, like just seeing the name comfort after having this whole experience with this animal. And like, then the first person to back me and then, and then the pledges or whatever, like the, the people started pouring in and the support started coming. And I remember laying down, like face down on the floor of my Airstream crying and thinking, but like, not even in a dramatic way, just laying there thinking like, this, this just happened. And the, this that just happened is like, people cared about me and like people believed in me being bigger than somebody selling prints at the train station or, you know, being on welfare or, you know, it was like all of a sudden somebody else saw something in me that I had always hoped was there, but I never really had confirmation if that makes sense. And I think that this is why I'm so not passionate doesn't even touch the surface. It's like, this is my truth is that like that human validation and connection. And it goes back to those like AA meetings or whatever. It's like, I think that that is so necessary in the human experience of saying to one another, like, I see you and I believe in you. And I see you even when you don't see yourself, I see you right now. And that's why I say like, I wish that there was church basements for everybody to go to on any night of the week when they just need to feel seen or validated or held or, you know, lifted up or whatever. And, um, you know, that women could have that space. And so, yeah, that shame just started to melt away. And I, and it's really interesting because there's this whole concept in life or, you know, in, in recovering from anxiety or all these things where they say like, well, don't seek validation from others. You have to find it in yourself. And I guess that that's true to a certain extent, right? Like we never, I guess, want to be reliant on others for, I don't know. But for me, I'm the opposite. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's stop trying to be so self-reliant and let's reach out to one another. And let's like 
support one another. That's to me, that's how the shame um, just started to completely fall away. And when I say no one else saw the spark in me, that's not true. My husband's always saying it, but I feel like he doesn't count. Um, (laughs) You know, he's like the type of person I remember, like on one of our first dates, I was like singing and he was like, you should go on American Idol. And in that moment, I was like, oh, he has his love goggles on because like (laughs) I cannot sing. But, um, but yeah, so I think like that, that's how the shame goes away. When you show your brokenness to somebody and they say like, wow, you're really, I I still believe in you and I see you. And that's why I love so much being a teacher face to face. And that's also the whole point of this book. Like after teaching high school last year and sitting down and being like, okay, cool. Like I, I, I was a great teacher. I really loved working with those students and I feel like I made a difference in their lives and they've told me I've made a difference in their lives. But like, how can I do that on a bigger scale that's also more accessible? Like, how can I do it in a way that I don't have to have people signing up for my workshops or paying a lot of money for, you know, my online classes? Like, how can I just, how can I do it? And it was like, oh, here we are again, staring at this book. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, here, here it is again. I'm going to have to do it sooner or later. So I want to say one thing about the self-reliant piece, because I think we do, we have this whole story. Don't get valid. You don't need to rely on others. In fact, you shouldn't rely on others for validation, da, 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 da. but it's, I think if you're the Buddha, that's fine. Like if you have the healthiest internal environment possible, then go for it. But it's just like with our bodies. It's like, if I want to be healthy, I'm going to look outside of myself as well as inside of myself. I'm going to look outside of myself for the foods that I need, for supplements, for exercise, whatever that is. I'm going to get help from people around me and from things in my environment to help me have a healthy body. If I have the healthiest body possible, fine. I don't need to rely on anything. I just have a healthy body. But it's the same thing with our mind. Minds are a tricky area like world to live in and I think that's what we do for one another it's like we lift each other up because it's tricky to be a person and to not get pulled down by all the stuff that's inside um so I just wanted to add that because I think I think that's important in terms of if we feel that we want validation oh there's something wrong with us I shouldn't need it I should blah 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 okay, fine. But that's really not very human. And yeah. And I think like to me, when I was little, I couldn't find that validation necessarily in the adults around me at all times. And so that's where I really turned to books. And like, that's where the authors, when I would read about other people's experience and their resiliency, it was that same experience. I love what you just said. It was like going to the library was my equivalent to going to the gym, you know? I totally know. Speaking of going to the library, and then I want to get back actually to the Kickstarter, but I know Maya Angelou was someone that you really loved. What was it about her that had you follow her around and love her so much? I don't know why. I just started crying. Um, I mean, I, I know why I love her. I'm saying I don't know why I just started crying. I think because like just that you mentioned her I cry all the time. Anyways, let's be honest. It's like just who I am. But, um, oh man, that woman is everything. She, to me, is truly everything. She, 
people talk so much about, first of all, just, oh man, I don't even know where to begin, but her whole concept of, you know, when she says everybody always talks about the butterfly, but no one wants to talk about like what it took to become a butterfly. And she's the person who talks about it. She's the one who talks about the the stuff that we don't talk about. I mean, you know, Maya Angelou was a prostitute. Maya Angelou had so many trials and just, my goodness, she rose to become a queen. I mean, she always was a queen, but she just eventually stepped into it. I, um, again, like, see, this is where I just become speechless because like growing up, her books were everything, everything to me. I could read them a thousand times and still read them a thousand times more. I think that the thing about my Angelou for me is that I found pieces of myself that I couldn't recognize in any other reflection or in any other people that I found in her books and her pages. It was like, oh yeah, there's that part of myself that I didn't know anybody else had. And now I recognize it in someone else that I think is incredible. And that makes it not only okay, but like maybe this part of myself that I thought was like the worst can actually maybe be awesome. And I started to think that um, little by little through reading her words and just, I remember, cause I did, I followed her like kind of like a groupie, like it was, <laughs> she was afraid to fly. So she would take a bus everywhere. And whenever she would have speaking engagements near Connecticut, I would kind of go and we would put it on a credit card. I, my husband and I, or at the time he was probably my boyfriend and we had no money. Um, but and we would like go early and I would just like watch to see if her tour bus arrived. I remember one time um, I went to hear her speak and she sang this little light of mine uh, several times during this one speech. Like she would be talking and then she would just start singing. And I had just had my son. And when we bought the tickets at the time, I didn't know that I was going to be pregnant or even have a child, you know, because I bought the tickets like a year in advance. And it was the first outing that I had when, after I had my son and I was such a young mom, I was clueless about motherhood as I think everybody is when they have their first kid probably, but I didn't know that like breast milk came out when the baby wasn't there. (laughs) And so I remember sitting in the audience and just like all of a sudden feeling my milk let down. And I remember you know, I, I was, I went by myself and I remember saying like, oh man, I'm going to have to miss this and go sit in the bathroom. But when I went to the bathroom, they had speakers in there. Cause I was just like literally sitting on the toilet, like with the seat down, just like, I, I mean, I don't know if this is like TMI, but like, you know, with yeah. my boobs just like, and so anyway, I remember crying and thinking like, again, like, this is so embarrassing. Like, what am I right now? I just had this baby. I don't know what I'm doing. How am I ever going to like be a mom if I can't even understand that this happens to my body? Like what, you know, I just, those voices, those like voices of doubting yourself and mom guilt and all of that just came crashing into me. And then I, all of a sudden on the loudspeaker, my Angelou starts singing this little light of mine And then right after she finished singing it, she went into a story of sitting on a hill with her baby son 
And she was saying, I was sitting on the hill overlooking the United Nations meeting, these people coming, and I was looking at them and I was thinking, I'm such a loser. Like, how am I ever going to be one of them? How I'm never going to... And she was like saying almost verbatim what I had just wow. thought like 30 seconds before. And so to me, and I'm sure it's the experience for so many women who have read her work or been around in her presence, it's like... She just has this way of making the things that we feel shame for or that we think we're alone with feel all of a sudden not only just universal, but like if she had those same feelings and she ended up in the United Nations building, then maybe I can have these same feelings and end up doing whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing, you know? And that ties in so perfectly with your experience around weddings and how the wedding day was just, it was a show of us being the best we can be. But, and then the, the juxtaposition with the rest of your week where you're running through the waters and the woods and not taking showers. And it's like, none of it made sense. It, none of it, it sounds like given what you just shared, where was the real in the weddings? And then where did your real life fit into the world of the wedding photographer. Yeah, that's really true. And I think like as parents, it shifts a little bit. I don't know if this is true for everybody, but like for us, we're constantly at this intersection of like, this is me being real and this is my truth. And okay, but like, I don't want my kids to be like, on food stamps, like I was, or like, I want to make sure that they have good health care and that my son can go to college. And so there's always this like tug of war between let's sell everything again and go live on a farm and make pottery. And like, wait a second, like, wait, we have to also kind of, I don't know. So yeah, yeah, that's also in there in the experience of like me being creative too, is like being a mom. And how much can I really reveal of myself without also like embarrassing my kids sometimes, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much that I don't say on the podcast because I'm like, it's um, need to respect my children's lives and what's private to them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. So one thing actually about the, the business piece is after this Kickstarter, so first of all, how and how much time did it take to raise 10000 How much did you raise from the Kickstarter for River Stories? Um, I don't know the exact number I should, but it was like 20-something, 20 20,000-something. 20, and one of the things that I saw that you said was when you made the leap into doing river photography, River Stories, you said about that time, it was the worst, but it was the best. And if someone said to do it again today, you'd say, oh, hell no. Mm-mm. Girl, let me tell you something. <laughs> I always thought that the simple life, right? Like, again, like, oh, live simply means live in a tiny home. You know, I think that's something that we're spoon fed very often nowadays when you watch like TV shows or whatever. Live simple means live in this airstream and travel the country. But like, the amount of work that goes into living on the road is like, oh man. I mean, we have friends who still do it and I'm like, whoa, hats off to you because I mean, again, I'm always full of stories, but I'll never forget this one time in Miami when our 
toilet got clogged and we had to like cut down a palm leaf outside and Thomas is outside the camper, like flushing water. And I'm shoving the palm leaf down the toilet swearing. And I'm like, this is not this does not look like the Instagram accounts that I follow. Somebody <laughs> lied. Who lied to me about this existence? It's like, I just kept thinking like, you know, and I do, I buy it hook, line and sinker, man. Even now when I look at these camping accounts or these families on the road and they show pictures of their feet hanging out of the tent and there's like mountains in the distance. And meanwhile, I'm like, Oh no, like now that you know the real story and you've met other families on the road, it's just a lot of work. And so I think it all depends on what your end goal is. Our end goal was to simplify and that was not what we were doing. And so we realized that for us, simple meant, okay, maybe we actually do want running water. Maybe that's part of the requirement of what simple means to us. Or maybe we really would love to have toilets that just flush and the stuff just goes and you don't have to think about where it's going. Like that felt more simple, you know? So we started to write in our notebooks of like, okay, well, this isn't necessarily what we thought it was going to be. We're going to love it. We're going to squeeze every ounce that we can out of this. And it's going to be the best adventure, but we are going to definitely refine, refine, refine so that we can move in the direction that's closer to what we were after. So it was just basically realizing the, the story that we have around a simple life and then getting clear on what it, what was the life that you wanted? Yeah. It was like, Oh, I want to drink a water. Okay. Well now we have to like boil the water. And it was just, yeah, we were like, wow, this is, and yeah. And to work at the same time, it was just a lot, a lot. But again, my kids, I don't, you know, it's funny because now my son is looking at colleges and he's a junior and he only has three semesters left, you know, with, I say with us, he'll always be our kid, but before he goes to college and I don't know if I would still say no, if you asked me to do it again, I think I would definitely say yes. Now, especially now that he's so close to leaving the nest, but it is definitely a lot a lot of work. Yeah. So in the last part of this interview, so there's so many more things and I want to speak to a few of them. One was you had mentioned like, okay, you struggle with anxiety or you have anxiety disorder. And one of the things that you had shared um, on Instagram that I want to connect with that was uh, you said this, your daughter, Lily, last spring, Lily started having panic attacks where she'd think her throat was closing. We took her to therapy and it helped a bunch, but there was still this lingering and deep fear. Then one day at school pickup, one of her closest friend's mom said, my kiddo has been having anxiety. We chatted and decided we'd tell the girls that they weren't alone. The next day at school, they chatted during the entire recess and after school, Lily was glowing. I'm not alone. She has the same thing. And then you say, I'm not saying mental illness is not real or that there is a finish line cure, but I can't help and wish people shared more of themselves to allow for that kinship, for allow for that kind of kinship safety. So the question around that is like, this ties into the world of social media and having no boundaries and anyone can weigh in. How, and I get it that you haven't really figured it out, but what have you figured out in terms of what you share to create that sense of kinship and to have us all know we're in the same boat together. And yeah, what have you figured out about what to share? 
I have nothing figured out. I'm not <laughs> lying to you. Like I wish it's really interesting. I was interviewed last week by this website building company and that's like it was really strange because like be- beforehand they I didn't really get a sense of what they wanted to ask me but then when they were interviewing me it was like well, you're so good at marketing and you're so good at social media. What's your secret? That was basically the same question over and over. And I was like, I literally, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, when I have no idea what to share and not share, I don't even know when the best times are. I don't know anything. I think one thing that I figured out when I was little I learned that the radiators in our house were hot because I burned them, my hands so bad touching them that they had to be wrapped in gauze. Mm. And I think when it comes to social media, it's kind of the same. It's like I've had to learn the hard way of like, oh shit, like I definitely shared too much that time. This feels a little uncomfortable. And next time I'm going to pull it back and then swinging the other direction of the pendulum where it's like, oh, well, now I feel like I'm being kind of fake. So that sucks too. And then you just kind of keep, you know, swinging back and forth yeah. and trying to find that middle place. But girl, I have no idea. I There's so many times that I share and think that one thing is going to happen and then something else happens. And I'm like, oh, it's just, I really, even with the Kickstarter, I don't know. I never know what I'm doing. I am, my husband is all logic. He's a computer engineer. He works for Venmo. He's hundred percent logic. And I am a hundred percent heart. And I'm like, if my heart's telling me to share this, then it must mean someone needed to hear it. I think that, um, in terms of the story with Lily and her friend at school, it's like when we see our kids struggling, especially with things that we ourselves have struggled with, it feels awful. I mean, there's really no other way around it. It kind of feels really hard. And being able to step back and see this experience and just how profoundly it changed for her once she realized that she wasn't alone, I realized that I perhaps was feeling alone, you know? And so I think that a lot of times on social media, I'm not sharing answers as much as I'm just sharing observations and questions. Like, I would think that that's more what like my account represents is which is like the truth of me, which is I am just walking around burning my hands on radiators all day. And then (laughs) telling you guys about it is like really what it boils down to. Um, I'm just trying to like figure it out. Yeah, I think, (laughs) I think that's what happens when we put ourselves out there, when we live our life with our heart. I, I think that is how it is. Um, I'm jealous of people who have a choice though. I will say this. This is something that I'm dealing with lately is like, I have to tell the truth. Like, I don't know any other way. I've been like this since I swear, since the day I came out, I've just always been a truth teller. And when I look at people who are so good at like pretending or, um, like, not, and I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. I'm like, wow, that must be so nice to just be able to be, you know, like especially about like race issues or women's issues or any of those things to have a conviction and be able to just sit with it and be like, eh, I'm not going to say anything. What? Like I sometimes I'm, even though it sounds ridiculous, sometimes I'm really jealous of those people because like 
it's hard sometimes to be someone who puts it all out there. It's, it really is tricky. It's tricky. It seems sometimes like things are easier for the ones who can keep it inside and write and post about things like manicures or whatever. I mean, yeah, yeah, I hear that. I I hear that. And I would just like to validate you because it's, it is a, it's a courageous way to live, whether you choose it or not. And it, it is just like you said, when you said that I share this because I, my, my heart is telling me to share it. So someone needs to hear it. And that's a gift. Like you just keep giving that gift, even as you are burning your hand on the radiator. (laughs) It's, it's true. It really is true. And you see that. So that brings us back to River Stories. I'm curious with the River Stories, as you started to really show up and take photos, take photographs in the way that you want to be taking them and play and have fun in the way you want to be doing it, what you saw in the people you were photographing. Oh my gosh. It was miraculous. Like, first of all, that business guy couldn't have been more wrong because like the first people to come hire me were like Harvard doctors or lawyers from firms in New York City. And, you know, he said that it was just going to be like dirty hippies with pennies in their pockets. And instead, which, hey, I love all people, but I'm saying what really surprised me again was this, it wasn't ever about the pictures. It's not about the pictures. And that's it's about this reunification with our primal selves in a way that is not hippie, right? Like it's not, I'm not saying come to my moon circle and let's put <laughs> crystals on our foreheads and like chant. It's not that. It's like, hey, let's do this basic human thing that human beings have been doing since the beginning of time, which is going to the water. We wouldn't have survived unless we lived near water. Like we had to, it was a necessity, right? So like, let's do this thing and let's just go to the water and put our, let's start just putting our feet in and how does that feel? And then let's go a little more. And then what happens when a fish brushes up against us? What happens when, so when you talk about this transformation, it was so symbiotic because it was like, every time I was photographing a woman, they were saying thank you. And then I would say thank you. And then they would say thank you. And it just became this constant flow of like, oh my gosh, this is really incredible. And I do care about the earth. I care about the water. I care about all these things. But more than anything, I care about the preservation of the female spirit. And I think my way of doing that work is to remind people, right? Like we talked about that self-resiliency, is to remind people that sometimes when the other people around us can't give us the gifts we need, maybe we can just like go for a walk in the woods. You know, I know that's not accessible to everybody, but even just finding a way to to become in touch with that other side of things. Um, For me, the rivers too, really the validation that was happening between people saying, Michelle, you're the only one who could do this. Like, um, you know, I, I really think that when I say that I doubt myself, people are like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, right. But like, it's real. And so, Every time somebody would say to me, Michelle, like this was incredible. You're the only one who could have held the space for me, or you're the only one who can take these pictures this way and see me in the way that see people, the way that you see people. That means something to me, whether it should or shouldn't, it feeds me and it heals me in ways that I never thought were possible. 
I didn't hear those things all the time ever, you know? And so when I, when I hear those things now, it's like, whoa, wait a second. Really? And could that be true? And allowing that the, the truth could be that maybe people love me as much as I love them, you know? So it was really transformative. And again, it's not like we sit there just weeping, holding each other. It's like, we just have so much fun and, and connect on a level that's like, you know, I talk a lot about like living on the different sides of the tracks, but a lot of times in geographical locations across America in big cities, it's living on either side of the river. You're on the east side or you're on the west side. And, you know, traditionally east side has during the industrial revolution, they had way more pollution. And that's why the poor people and the laborers were put on the east side. That's where the wind would blow. And that's why they were placed there. And so historically and currently, a lot of the upper class people are on west side and a lot of the lower class people are in the east side. And River Story at its core is like, let's meet in the middle. Let's just go in the river that symbolically divides us. Who are we when everything else is stripped away? Like who are women when we're, we don't have to have all of these things that we think define us and we can literally just be in the water. And when I say I photograph the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor and nobody feels confident standing in the rushing water with fish coming by and this different experience and a camera being held up, it's like it really brings us back to this one shared human experience of vulnerability and connection. That's amazing. Okay. I'm going to let people know where they can see your pictures. I'm going to ask you one more question, but I'm going to bring this to a close by first saying, uh, if you want to see some of the types of photos that Michelle takes to go to one, you can go to her Instagram feed, which is at Michelle Gardella. M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-A-R-D-E-L-L-A. And you can also go to the website, michellegardella.com, and then it's forward slash river-stories, right? Is that what it is? I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Well, if you go to michellegardella.com, you'll find it. It's there. Yeah. Um, so you can see this, these photos and keep up with Michelle's work and find out about River Stories for yourself. And then the next thing is a gratitude and then the last question. So my gratitude for you is that you have chosen chosen to show up in life as the bobcat, that you are taking your brokenness, you're taking the wounded parts of you and still showing up and in that there is so much power and you are this powerful, strong woman because of all of who you are and because of your willingness to share all of who you are. It's very, very moving and it is changing lives. And this has been a very powerful time for me in conversation with you. So thank you for showing up that way. And then the last piece, this is my last question. It's kind of a big question. One of my favorite quotes that I have, the artist's observations become a means of answering the fundamental question, what does it mean to be a human being? And I find that that's a question that I'm always 
playing with. What does it mean to be a human being? What is it? What does it mean to be on this planet as a person? And that creativity is often a way into that. I think for me, what I'm learning is like, I don't get to escape the hard stuff. Like, it's not like I'm ever going to get so many tools in my toolbox or so many accomplishments or good days or whatever that all of a sudden the hard stuff is just going to not happen. It's like, it's always going to come. It happens to everybody. And I don't know. I feel like the more that we can share those experiences with one another, the less of like a fatal or painful impact it can have on our lives and our hearts. Yeah, that's great. Anything else that you want to say as we finish here? No, I mean, I just am always so grateful when people want to hear me share and, um, Thank you for holding the space the way that you did. You're remarkable in the way that you ask such thoughtful and meaningful questions. And I love your ability to to really allow people to be raw in a way that's not like you don't have to squint. You know, you can look at it with open eyes. Uh, Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, and to learn more about the collective, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram, and you can support the podcast and the artists on it by going to iTunes Podcasts and subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Now to review, you actually have to get on your laptop and subscribe to the podcast, and it does take a few minutes. But the more reviews, the more folks know about all these incredible artists and makers doing such beautiful work in the world. So thank you for taking a little bit of your time to share your thoughts over at iTunes. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit podcast. Thank you for listening.